so people, yes, are exploring this idea of what, what is a world where, you know, the applications can be, basically, we see it like this, like in, in the centralized web, when you say facebook.com or twitter.com, you think of, you know, the user interface, but what you really have is a mixture of code, uh, data, um, and infrastructure behind a domain name. And, and it's all right. siloed and sort of smushed together. And well, in Arweave, what we do is we, we just radically decouple those things. So you can pull back the application, which itself is now just code that is immutable, permanent, and, and, and stored without owner in the system. You can pull that back on any uh, infrastructure you want. We call those gateways. And that means your application is radically portable. But even weirder, and this is where things get, I think, really exciting, um, is that the data is decoupled from the applications. So that means that if you upload a piece of data using one user interface, you can pull that data back using another interface. It's like every single application nice. has, a, has a radically open API everywhere. And so as a developer, this is like a whole different game because when you start like a Twitter-like application, you don't have the cold start. You, you, don't, you don't even need to have like the network because you've got, already got everyone that's got an RV wallet is a user of your system. to Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel, where we explore projects in decentralized finance that are innovating and driving our mission of financial freedom forward. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review Mission DeFi and spread the word by posting a tweet to the show. All opinions expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests are their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Black Knox, Material Indicators, or any other affiliated organizations. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests as an inducement to make a particular investment, follow a particular strategy, or become involved with any project. A project being featured on the show is not an endorsement of that project in any way. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Now, here's Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel. I have Sam Williams on the show. He's the creator of Arweave, but I'm excited to have him on, not only because I think Arweave is pretty cool, but because I have made assumptions about what Arweave is for a long time and recently dove really deep into what's going on. Well, I shouldn't say really deep, but deep enough into what's going on over there to think that there's a lot more um, to our weave than any of us in the space really understand or know. And so I'm excited to have Sam on to tell us all about it. So Sam, thank you so much for coming on. If you could introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit of your background and, and then we'll climb into our weave and what it is. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I'm excited to chat about, yeah, our weave is not just storage. It's a, well, the storage that enables a bunch of different things. I think you're exactly right when you said, uh, yeah, try and explore what's what some of those things are because sometimes I also feel like even we, as the people that like started our weave in the first place, we are still just scratching the surface of what it can do. So excited to get into it. I, I built our weave in the in the first place. It's a permanent information storage protocol, um, essentially like Bitcoin but for data. You put information inside the the protocol and it stores it in many different nodes around the world. So much so that that it can't possibly be lost over time. And we have a sustainable endowment structure to back this. So kind of the DeFi-ish side of Arweave, which is basically 
you know, we pay for 200 years worth of storage upfront when you put data in, which sounds relatively expensive, but actually storage is so cheap that for like you know, relatively small things like NFT images or something like that, it's like a cent or two, same with make, uh, sorry, web pages. Um, yes, so you pay for 200 years worth of storage as cost of storage declines, 200 years expands out. That's essentially what we, what we realize is kind of the nugget of how you can make an economically sustainable uh, machine to store data for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. Um, and our, our real goal when we got started was to build a essentially humanity's collective knowledge store, something that is neutral and provably safe and can store data for such a long period of time that it can be passed between generation and generation. Um, yeah, that, that's what got us started. But what were you doing before you decided that you wanted to create this thing, right? And and then kind of what was the what was the thing that birthed the idea? Like were you sitting one day and saying, "I really need a way to store data," or or what? Uh, so so I was doing a PhD in well, ostensibly in operating system design, distributed operating system design. <laughs> um, but but in truth, like I, I built you know the core of the operating system that I I created. In like the first year of my PhD, and that gave me quite a lot of time to sit and read about, you know, geopolitics was actually the thing that I was obsessed with. Frankly, I, I just woke up every morning, started reading <laughs> about geopolitics online, and, and then I read until till late in the night, and then I'd, you know, listen to an audio book while walking, and then I'd go to sleep, and I did this relentlessly. And what really sort of gave birth, if you will, to to Arweave was this. This the final final stage of that. So I, I was really fascinated with trying to understand how the system of the world works in as much detail as I could. I don't know why. I just like I'm obsessed with that. It's it's so interesting to me. It's a machine, one way or another, but it's it's got people in it, and they're all doing different things. And it's understanding how that operates is just like obscenely interesting to me. <laughs> so that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, what, what really led to Arweave was at the end of that, I started reading about uh, the authoritarian regimes of the past. And there was something that I was, I know, I, my life changed when I, when I read 1984 when I was a teenager. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my life changed <laughs> when, when I read 1984 when I was a teenager. And I'd, I'd always been fascinated with how those systems, I guess, systems of government and society worked. And I guess they're kind of diabolical systems, frankly, they did awful things. And how was that able to happen? It's a key question, I suppose. Um, and then, you know, towards the end of this process, I started reading about, I read the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn and Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and, um, and uh, Aquarians of Pyongyang, which is in the, basically all about concentration camps of these different authoritarian regimes on left and right. And I don't know that if this is reproducible, but what happened to me when I was exposed to like, it's about 2000 pages in total of descriptions of the worst possible places that humans can invent. So your, your, your mindset really, really shifts. It's like, I'm looking out of my window here at Manhattan and there's a system of life here and, you know, people complain about it and what have you, but the most people and I, and I, yeah, we're just not exposed to how bad things can get, I suppose. So to, and, and I'm, I'm fond of this phrase by uh, 
I think Adam Curtis started using it first, called Odierism. This observation that uh, people, in, particularly in the West, you know, where life is actually relatively peaceful and, and prosperous, and you know, don't get me wrong, there's problems, but like, as far as it goes, yeah, that relative to others. Yeah, relative to other places, it's sort of largely true. Um, we hear about terrible things that happen elsewhere in the world, and, and, and it just kind of washes off, right? Like it doesn't, you know, you, you hear about it, and then The Simpsons starts, I think, was what Adam Curtis described it as. And he's right. Well, it turns out if you read 2,000 pages of descriptions of this stuff, and you see it in, you know, it's not just one political ideology. It's actually just the set. It's, it's a set of ideas of total control of societies can lead to these things that are just so, so abominable, like, yeah, it's horrific that, that it yeah. radically changed my mindset. And I was like, well, thank God. Wow. <laughs> Forget all my problems. Life problems are so easy, man. <laughs> thank God. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Thank God for, uh, thank God for the status quo in some sense. And, you know, and then I started to see, I'd been watching this for a while, but then it became, well, now that is a serious threat, not just a, I guess that's kind of interesting yeah. pattern in life was growing trend towards authoritarianism that I saw in the West and, and the, the, the rise in, I think this is about the only fact that, that both sides can agree upon, <laughs> the rise in extremity on both left and right. And, uh, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm a real fan of this, this philosophy that says, well, you can't solve, no single person can solve all the problems. And actually attempting to do so, or even con contemplating the idea that we could is like the problem. It's not the problem. It's one of the problems. <laughs> You're far better off sure. just being like, okay, no, there's this one thing I can do, and it's a tiny piece of the puzzle. We'll go do that. And just like if you put all of your effort and energy into doing that one tiny thing, you might actually succeed. And then if everyone did that, you know, we might actually solve the damn problems. So, so I, you know, I, I, I was doing a PhD in distributed operating systems, which is just essentially a sub-discipline of distributed system design. And I, right. that was my niche. That's what I know. And uh, I, I saw that, you know, there's actually right at the beginning of the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, like it's literally in the first few pages, he writes about how copies of the manuscript were nearly lost at several different points. And he had to commit part of it to memory over time to preserve it. And, and this sort of factored in this, this other pattern I was seeing, which is like, look, if you want to have an authoritarian or totalitarian society, one way or another, you have to gain control of information distribution because it's through information distribution that, you know, this is true of all people, myself included, we are essentially programmed by the information that we're exposed to and that we believe. Sure. It's a system of propaganda, I suppose. No, Chomsky right. would describe it. And so I figured, well, look, making it so that there is and there's a and there's a there's a problem there, which is well on the internet. The way that the protocols are set up is you can speak at the behest of whoever owns the server you're interacting with, which is like the social network typically. And uh, sure. there's the rub, right? That's the problem. <laughs> and okay, well I thought, hey, I'm pretty sure I could build a system that can ensure people's ability to speak, not just today but over time, in cyberspace. And, you know, I was climbing with my father one day, the mountain in Scotland, and it was raining. And I, you know, this idea just, just came to me while my wow. head was down, you know, it's raining. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> he's got this photo of me, and I stood there, 
trying to type out like a message to to someone that ended up being on the early team of our we've uh, like writing down this idea while the rain is dripping on my phone and the, the messages are it's overflowing telegrams buffer of messages so when they actually when we got a signal range again that we could send they were all out of order but fortunately i, I remember and um yeah i mean that was like six weeks now i've heard i've heard a lot of backstories in the time i've been doing this show and missions um and and i'd have to say you're you uh you take the cake with that one that's um that's pretty amazing man that's been you know, right. I, how has it been tough keeping not for yourself but has it been tough keeping that front and center of the community and of what's being built at Arweave, kind of that mission that drove you to to to, to want to create this no not really um you know that well the, the journey was tough full stop <laughs> it's not not an easy sure. thing um, but I would say that at, on the fourth anniversary of the mainnet, uh, Sophie, someone from our team who's been with us for like four years now, she was, uh, <laughs> she'd had a few, uh, German beers and she was saying, Sam, I'll never forget that time you went on some podcast in 2018. And you said, well, look guys, I'm going to build this permanent information storage system. And I have no idea if anyone's going to use it or care about it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And here we are. I was like, wow, I don't remember that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, like, we were, we were like diehard on this mission. We were going to do it regardless of, frankly, however many people wanted to come along. Like my hunch was, and has always been that, that people see the problem. And now there's a big community around our, we've all people that see the problem and see the, the potential solution. And, um, and that also that's valuable, like, like, you know, there's an interesting thing you speak to investors. They're always like, oh, what's the town? What's the town? I remember an early investor in Arweave was like, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, do you really think academic storage is, is, is important? It's like, I don't know. Well, I have a hunch that humans have been trying to inscribe information as permanently as possible, basically since they've been <laughs> able to write. <laughs> and I have a hunch that if we can revolutionize that system, which archiving literally has not been changed for like, guess thousands of years like they always have this centralized point of failure you put the data there you pray that someone's going to give you donations <laughs> and that's how the system perpetuates perpetu i'm doing air quotes i'm not sure if anyone can see it yeah perpetuates itself <laughs> um so and and and, and the, the other thing i would say about that is the thing that gives me real comfort i would be terrified if i was starting this as a web 2 company i think it would just I would have zero faith that the thing would stay on this mission because either I would break it from this mission or the people that succeeded me over time would break it from this mission. Uh, but this is what is so exciting about protocols, right? We, we can embed in the protocols, the sort of almost in our case, of kind of quasi-political principles. Like it does a certain set of things and, and it's designed such that I can't change it. We have those principles in our, we've written down and embedded, of course, in the Perma web. <laughs> and, and I told like, you know, after we, after we wrote those things down and we agreed upon them in the community, I told the core people, don't ever let me change it from these things or anyone else. This is, these are our mutable rules. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that gives me comfort. I really hope that, that you know, one of the things that's so exciting about Crypto is it might be the first time that we are able to escape the founder has exciting idea 
works on it passionately, eventually leaves, new CEO comes in, things starts to get corrupted. And of course, what they've actually made is not a product. It's a machine that makes money. That's the company, right? And, and it's, you know, they're pretty effective machines. They're just like optimizing for whatever it is that makes money today, but they are not effective machines at changing the world in a reliable way. Whereas I think Bitcoin and something like Arweave that is like a serious protocolization effort can. What year did you start working on it? Uh, early 2017. And then we shipped okay. mainnet in June, June 8th, because it's a, <laughs> it was the anniversary of the publishing of 1984, of course, in 20. Ah, perfect. No, 2017, we started 2018, we shipped. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, and in the, in the heat of that was Bitcoin, Ethereum, yeah. other things going on were, were were those primary influences on on how you built Arweave, or did you kind of build this yeah. you know it in your own mind first <laughs> well definitely i mean like i i've been mining bitcoin in the i, I can't really remember for sure the, the which summer it was it's like 2012 or 2013 started mining it it counted it when i was still in college in, in the uk colleges before university. Uh, so but it was like sub $1 sort of time. So it was very, very early. And that was a big influence for me, of course. Like that was the moment where, well, when I first saw Bitcoin, I was like, this is just magic, magic internet money. It's nothing interesting about that. Or it's kind of curious, but like fun, goofy thing. It's not, you know. And there was a few years later, I started to really look into it. And around that time, people were first starting to experiment with alternate consensus mechanisms. So he's like, summer of 2012 or 2013, if I remember correctly. Um, that was that was when I really started to understand what was going on. And I put some of those Bitcoin that I, I mined in my GPU in my university halls. So I put it into the Ethereum ICO because I was like, yeah, let's buy some compute credits. This looks like fun. And so I've been watching that journey like, you know, since more or less the beginning. But I would say that Bitcoin is a bigger influence for me than than Ethereum. I think that Okay. You know, well, this is a maybe a controversial opinion. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, my okay. <laughs> my hunch is this: like, if Ethereum had scaled in 2015 or 2014, late 2014, I think when they shipped, something like that. Yeah. Um, if it had scaled from the beginning, I think we would live in an entirely different world, where the protocols would be actually decentralized. There would be no core team. You wouldn't be looking to Vitalik to tell you you know, what to believe. And I think that the fact that none of the smart contract systems have scaled and, and that's because it's super hard. Like they don't really have a sure. solvable problem. <laughs> it's yeah. So I, so, you know, I can, I can really, really empathize with that. Are we fortunately permanent storage can scale and we, we are exceedingly lucky that we just happen to pick one of the problems that is actually solvable. But, but my wondering is, yeah, like if Ethereum had scaled at the beginning, would we have ended up with something? It was much more like Bitcoin, where it's like, look, here are the protocol rules. It just runs. No one's going to interfere with it. Right. We're not going to have, you know, I love Ethereum. I think it's a very, very cool project, but it pained me last year. And I, I even think that, you know, okay, I'm not a super fan of proof of stake, but I'm at least more of a fan of proof of stake than just burning energy, I suppose. <laughs> um, sure. But, you know, it pained me when we, it's like, okay, so... $8 billion 
of TPUs. They're just like instantly wrecked. Like there's, there's no use for those now. Uh, well, I mean, there's, right. there's barely any value in them, at least. There are some alternatives, yeah, but, but, but really not, not, not that they're going to stay that way. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that could happen just basically because of the centralized leadership of, of the Ethereum foundation. And as someone, you know, you maybe picked up, I really love protocolization. I really think that the reason that this industry exists as opposed to just, you know, web two is because we can build protocols that have immutable rules that there's like a fair game where everyone knows the rules from the beginning. Um, yeah, rather than, rather than basically just having web two startups, but there's kind of a protocol underneath so you can sort of fork it. But to be honest, like that was never really the problem. Building the software is not the problem with forking inverted commas, a web two company. Like the software is normally not that much of a moat. It's, it's everything else. And so I must say that I'm sort of, I understand how we got here. I just kind of wish, I wonder, you know, what would have happened if, if, you know, it was Bitcoin first, then permanent storage second, then smart contract systems. I think we might've ended up in a world where, um, yeah, where we were much more serious about decentralization and the protocols would be real protocols, not as someone on the forward research team described it to me, like, uh, web two products in web three clothing, something like that. Oh, nice. Wow. That's um, I, that's a very interesting take, and it's very difficult to argue with with any of that. Um, I just spoke to a founder of a of a project two days ago called Quai Network, who um, has very much was very much expressing the exact same thing, mm, um, and he's taking a very radically decentralized uh, approach uh, to scaling and to um, the solving the trilemma. Um, but, but it was very interesting to hear him talk about it, the problem that way and why he was inspired to create this, this chain. Um, and what drove him was a lot of what you were just expressing about Ethereum. So it's very interesting. Um, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful he'll succeed because he's taking a really radically decentralized approach to how they're building and launching it and letting it go to the, to the world as a protocol focused as a protocol that can never be um, controlled by a centralized foundation or anything else. Right. So very interesting, very much in light in the line of um, uh, what we see with Bitcoin. Um, anyway, um, this is kind of a silly, trivial question, but I just, it's in my head. Um, what was the first thing that was stored on are we on the permaweb? I believe it was a copy of 1984. Ah, of course. That's yeah. perfect. That's perfect. Okay. So, um, you touched on the idea that our weave is the, the, the tenets of it, the, the basis of it, the ethos, the mission of it was, um, to create a, a truly decentralized network that would allow for, um, storage data storage, um, that could not be interfered with, that could always be there, uh, forever. Um, and, um, that it would be lasting and that um, it, it, it would always be available. So we, we've covered that kind of high overview thing. But my my look at our weave is that there is a lot more going on there. Yes. Um, everything from data storage to smart contracts to use as a database to um, any number of things, as well as a, 
a community that's really hardcore. It's funny because I do trade still occasionally with the, the tools that I have a trading cool company with. And I tell the story that I was in, in a trade and it was going south. I didn't know what was going on with it. What I always do is I go, to, I go look at the website and the documentation for the project. And then I go look at the community. I go to see you know, what they're like. Um, and there really seem to be some seriously hardcore true believers at Arweave. <laughs> Um, and, um, a really committed group, um, Builders. that do seem to, yeah. yeah, that do seem to care about, um, the original mission that you started with. And so I'm, I'm curious real quickly on that. Um, what has that been like? Uh, was that something that, that grew, um, rapidly or was that something that took time to really convince people that what you were trying to do was much more than, than what it appears on the surface? Well, um, there were some people right at the beginning, and they're still around today, some of them, that, that cottoned on quickly to what the idea was. What was useful was, you know, our website back in 2017, we were PhD students, right? So uh, our, our marketing skills were atrocious. <laughs> but but, but in, a, in a surprising sense, that ended up being a useful filter. Because if you could read through all of that, and you actually... I mean, back then, our, our problem was writing too much text, it turns out. <laughs> People don't want to read that much. Okay, fair enough. But, but at the time, it was like, no, 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 no. We were just going to outline exactly the vision and the why. And like, some people read it. And so there was a quite a an, yeah, hardcore group that emerged right at the beginning. Um, but it did take time for people to learn. And I think part of it's exactly what you laid out at the beginning. You know, people think it's just, okay, it's just storage. For a start, like they think, okay, storage... It's like, no, it's, it's not storage. It's permanent storage, right? Permanent storage is this thing you can't buy anywhere else. It's not like, you know, people are always like, oh, yeah, <laughs> how much does it cost relative to Amazon? I'm like, dude, I, I don't care. Like, that's completely irrelevant. <laughs> it's like, yeah, try getting Amazon to sell you permanent storage. They're going to change the offering like yeah. five years from now or 10 years from now. Maybe even like 20 that's if right. you're lucky. Well, the point is the protocol. So it can offer a, a business model, which is it's essentially a risk model, right? It says... You pay for 200 years, cost of storage to clients, expands out however long that ends up being. It's like we've done a bunch of simulations and it's all, the cool part is transparent. You can go and have a look. You can, you can essentially assess it for yourself and see how it works. In our simulations, you, you know, in many regular parameters, you reach way further than 10,000 years. So that is not a service that Amazon can render for you. Um, no. Yeah. So, so I think another thing that happened is well, we were thinking just permanent storage, store information for as long as humanly possible. And we, we defined in like this uh, rather cringingly named master plan. <laughs> the, the success for us is, is that the data outlasts the last human-like thing. That's, uh, that's when we know that we've won, which I like that. sad because I'll never see it. But, you know, that's a decent game. But still cool to think about. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, yeah. you set the bar reasonably high. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah. It turns out when you have permanent storage, one of the things that changes is also it, it's kind of power over the data. And that, it turns out, is a, is a massive rabbit hole that we hadn't transparently anticipated at the beginning. Because so wow. when you upload data to Arweave, even as the creator, you can't remove it. And that's because Arweave is like a transparency layer. It's like it's a ledger of speech. And we don't think that you should be able to unsay things. That's not how time works. <laughs> so it shouldn't be how time works in, in cyberspace either. Um, 
But what happens when you do that is, okay, so now you have information that's permanently publicly available with no controller at all. Huh, interesting. What are applications? What are web apps? Fundamentally, they are data. Huh, okay. So with this system, it turns out you can build web applications that have no controller. And that is something radically, radically different. And um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, frankly, I'll even been live for six months before we even put these things together. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and and then we started playing. It's amazing how that happens, though. Right. That 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 you build something in this business or in this world, yeah. in the tech world, and you don't. I I often talk about the fact that um, the greatest inventions in tech come from the things that nobody thought might be possible from the original reason for the tech. Yes. And and right. and that's been. I've seen that over and over again in my career. Yeah. So that's fascinating. The whole of the web that's, was like that's that. really interesting. The web was just supposed yeah, to be a course. knowledge graph. And now it's like this, it's the yeah. universal application platform. It's totally, totally different. Yeah. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. So, so, so then people started, you know, we, we basically started talking to people about this idea. Like, hey, you can build inside the system permanent decentralized applications that no one controls. And then the first like seed of excitement around that actually came about a year after mainnet suddenly Put out this little like Gitcoin hackathon for like a hundred bucks or something for building something. And then, you know, we had like 50 applications in a few days. So I was like, whoa. <laughs> and then ever since then, it's been like a diehard builder focused community. Um, and and so, so people, yes, are exploring this idea of what, what is a world where, you know, the applications can be basically, we see it like this, like in, in the centralized web, when you say facebook.com or twitter.com, you think of you know the user interface, but what you really have is a mixture of code, uh, data, um, and infrastructure behind a domain name, and and it's all right. siloed and sort of smushed together. And well, in early, what we do is we we just radically decouple those things, so you can pull back the application, which itself is now just code that is immutable, permanent, and 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 stored without owner in the system. You can pull that back on any. Uh, infrastructure you want, we call those gateways. And that means your application is radically portable. But even weirder, and this is where things get, I think, really exciting, um, is that the data is decoupled from the applications. So that means that if you upload a piece of data using one user interface, you can pull that data back using another interface. It's like every single application nice. has, a, has a radically open API everywhere. Wow. And so Wow. As a developer, this is like a whole different game because when you start like a Twitter-like application, you don't have the cold start. You, you, don't, you don't even need to have like the network because you've got, already got everyone that's got an RV wallet is a user of your system. And everyone's posts on every other social media-like application are your seed data. And inside those pieces of data, and you know, all of this came to us in like a very long series of surprises, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, these pieces of data, well, they, we, we built the thing like a ledger, right? It's a ledger of information. And that means that, you know, we don't just store and address things by content. We think that's kind of crazy, frankly. It's not the content that you need to address things by. It's the, the summation of the content and the metadata, right? So you need to know somebody said it at some point in time with some set of arbitrary extra data, we call that uh, tags, and then the data itself. That is the, that is the assertion, if you will. Um, and so it turns out with those tags, well, if you have 
a permanent stream of uh, data. A smart contract, interestingly, is really in its core, <laughs> actually just consensus about data. So it's consensus about oh, what's the source code, right? What's the initial state? And then what are the set of interactions? That's the stuff you actually need. The compute turns out like, you don't need that in the consensus layer at all. And, and you know, we, we had this realization about three, three years ago now, I guess. Um, and we built this thing called SmartWeave, which is a lazily evaluated system. And it has these really wild properties. Like the compute doesn't need to be safe because it's running on the user's machine by default. So the user has a different trust relationship. Instead of it being, right, when you run something on Ethereum, the developer has to be writing safe code because it's going to be running on a nodes server rather than a user sure. system in the same way like a desktop app would work. And that means that you know, the, the node operator has to not have to trust the developer. Well, in this system, right. it's way, way closer to a desktop application. So you can have like as much compute as you want. We don't care. It can even be like super unsafe. It can like read from your disk and anything you want, if you like, can even potentially be non-deterministic if, if that's something you can wrangle in, your, uh, in the smart contract you're building. So they're like radically flexible smart contracts. And when we came out with this three years ago, everyone thought we were like nuts. <laughs> they're like lazy evaluators and this is crazy. And, but funnily enough, this is actually exactly where all the major smart contracting systems are going. This is like, you know, the data availability layers that they talk about that right. that's essentially just a short weave. It's like, so what they care about is they want an availability of data for a certain period of time so that people can say, yes, this transaction came before this transaction. That's the key part. Well, Arweave does that, but it also stores the data permanently. Um, so just one final thing on that. Uh, I promise I'll stop soon. Um, but the weird thing is, so you, smart, you, you start these smart contracts from the tags of a piece of data. That's really interesting because it means, huh, now your piece of data has uh, a smart contract inside it. Like you have one identifier, which is, you know, you put that in the browser, it, it shows you the image or the video or the, the web page or whatever it is. You put that in a block explorer, it'll show you the state of the contract and you query a, uh, a, a GraphQL thing. By the way, everything on Arweave is, is totally indexed. So it's like a database, not like a file store. Um, yeah, and you, and you can get back all the tags and all the, you know, you can say, hey, give me everything that Bob has uploaded between this date and that date. It's got app name, you know, public square, which is our sort of open protocol like Twitter. Um, and it will return to you all of that information, just like a database does. And so I know this is some of the stuff we're exploring with Arweave. Wow. Okay. So first of all, I'm going to tell you that um, I'm not a developer, but I, 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 I have a strong understanding of technology. I've worked with hundreds of developers in my life, and this may not make it to the show because it's totally irrelevant, but I have had um, for years been thinking about um, I don't even know how to talk about this, but a tag-based free-form text oh, you're kidding. database operating system oh. that was distributed um, and capable of functioning. So as you're describing this to me right now, I'm like, <sighs> wow, it's all there. Yeah, you, you should, <laughs> you know? yeah, you should check that out. It's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> because it sounds like yeah. um, a lot of what I envisioned is possible through that. Um, wow, interesting. Okay. Huh. So you've got my head going, but I think we skipped one thing. Yes. And I think we need to rewind a little Please. and explain to people 
how our we functions <laughs> yes. and how they relate that to what they know in the blockchain Absolutely. crypto world. Yeah. Um, if that's if you don't mind. Yeah. So so we started Aweef with the structure of Bitcoin, and then we decided, well, hey, what's the minimum number of things we have to change to get from Bitcoin to a permanent data storage system? And it turns out one of those is obviously the mining mechanism. So in Aweef, instead of having, you know, in, in academia they call these scratch off puzzles. But basically in Bitcoin, we know it as you get a nonce and then you see whether it, it uh, satisfies a cryptographic property, basically. And you keep doing that right. and it turns out in Bitcoin, only one person wins every 10 minutes and we adjust the difficulty up and down based on that. Well, in the Arweave network, um, you do a sort of similar thing, but instead of just guessing random numbers and burning energy on it, you, you, you guess a random position in the data set and you pull it back and you have to make a, what we call a succinct proof of access, um, which says, yes, I can prove that here's the chunk that that, that byte falls inside. And eventually one of those will satisfy that cryptographic puzzle. And we, we vary the difficulty in the same way. There's fortunately, I, I like to th keep things simple if we can, there's a fair amount more to it, but that's the broad picture. So Bitcoin replacing, um, Yes, replacing energy expenditure with replicating the data set. And then, of course, this endowment structure is working out how much to pay the miners such that at today's storage prices, we get currently is 45 replicas, but with 2.6, we have a much smoother, uh, more even replication of the data. So we think we can drop that to about 20 or 25. Um, yeah, so it'll pay such that, and it's looking at the amount, yes, it'll pay such that it gets that, correct number of replicas. And then it sort of uses a PID controller essentially say, okay, look, I'm getting 24 replicas right now. I need to increase the emission from the endowment. Okay, now I'm getting 26, let's decrease it a bit. And, and this modulates the incentive for miners to come along and add more hard drives to the system. As well as, you know, there's a block reward and, and that sort of subsidizes excess replicas. Right now it's like 200 reps or something. Okay, so you use the mechanism of of what the network is for storing data as part of the model for how it's mined yes. and how it's and 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 how it functions as a blockchain. But then um, you also have built into that the token incentive or utility um, to get people to add more storage so that it continues to expand um, using uh, financial incentives that are pretty clear, right? Yeah. I mean, it just makes sense. And, and I read something in the documentation on your website that, um, and I, I'm, I should have refreshed it and I don't remember now, but I do remember something about, um, how you all are calculating longer term cost of storage, um, mm -hmm. and, and how that's done. Can you kind of, um, walk Absolutely. us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, so there's only really one smart contract as much as you want to even want to call it that in the base layer. And, and that says, okay. You look at the cost of storage from miners, or rather, it's a little bit different in 2.5. 2.6 is coming out in a few weeks, hopefully, and, and that, that it's, it, I'll just explain that one because it's easier. <laughs> it looks at the cost of storage from miners, uh, and then it says, okay, cool. So we expand out. I'm getting like this many gigabytes uh, for an hour at this sort of emission. Fine. So what if it's not an hour? What if it were 200 years? Okay, cool. So we work that out. And then we say, well, that is the cost of storing data in a hard And if the cost of storage never drops again, if there's never any token volatility, and you just get straight up 200 years. Um, but of course, 
generally over time, the cost of storage is uh, declining. Technology is deflationary, uh, which is a pretty cool thing because it means if you have a certain amount of value today and you're able to just maintain the value, and it turns out maintaining value over time is hard, which is why we don't use a stable coin. Um, stable coins, they all drop to zero within 100 years because the fiat currencies behind them drop to zero. So that's not going to work. <laughs> but but so we so we have a floating token that which has volatility, but we just add huge buffers for it. Um, yes, we say okay. So we keep the value. If you can keep a hundred bucks for like ten years, the amount of data that you can store is actually way more for the same amount of money. It's quite weird. And the the net effect of this is in the always case. Okay, well if the cost of storage declines at a rate above zero point five percent, then you end the the year with more storage purchasing power than you had at the start. Which is really a strange thing, but it's, it's true. You can like run the simulations and you can just think about it. No, make, I think it makes sense though. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, we, we chose 0.5% because it's like three human generations is 200 years. So for like pessimistic people, that's kind of quote permanent unquote anyway, but for more optimistic people, they can see, well, look like, you know, half a percent storage cost decline per year is, is very, very small relative to what humans have done in the past. We're at like. 30%, three zero in an average year in the last 50. And even before digital computers came along, the cost of encoding data and the, the, uh, the sort of reliability of the medium that it was encoded onto has been dropping an insane rate ever since basically we've been scratching onto cave walls. You can like, you see the trend is like humans, for whatever reason, we just love to encode data. We just keep getting better at it. That's really interesting. Yeah. So that's that's the core principle of our leaf. Um, what, what was the what was the most difficult thing to solve in in for you in uh, you know you had this idea you had this concept but then there's the time it takes to actually make it functional and and was it where was it the financial incentives was it the mining components was it, what, what was the most difficult thing for you all to to address technologically? No, well, until you said the word technologically, I had a clear answer. Um, I Oh, no, it's okay. Give me both. Yeah. Okay. So, so technologically making it scale is important, like as I mentioned before, and how we do that is we basically just bundle transactions together. So you deposit five bucks with a bundling service, and then it mixes our data together into one transaction on the base layer. And that's hyperscalable. That's pretty cool. And then when there are even too many bundlers, the bundlers just start sending each other bundles and they get bundled. You get these like recursive trees of bundles. And that means that you can arbitrarily scale the network. So that's pretty cool. That took, I mean, that means we have no fee markets ever, like really ever. So that's kind of amazing. Um, that, that took some effort and thinking to get that right. I would say the hardest thing though, has been attempting to work out how to bring something like this that needs to be a provably neutral, transparent network into existence in the confusing and, and morphing, ever morphing world of crypto where, you know, we all came here from, from a background of protocolization and decentralization, but it's like all of the incentives push towards centralization or something like that. And there is no playbook. I mean, Satoshi left the only playbook, which is like, look, you work on the thing for a year and then you disappear. And you <laughs> My hunch is they were actually in the community afterwards. They just started using a different name. That was cool. They got smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but but that's not open to me because I, you know, I use my my real name <laughs> with Awi right from. Everybody knows who you are. Yeah, and so, yeah. but trying to 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 guide this into a place of real decentralization, um, where it's where it's actually a protocol, not a product pretending to be a protocol, is has been, I'd say, the hardest part. It's, there is no. Are you are you a protocol? To, is it a protocol today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a protocol from the start, but it's it's you know Ethereum. I mean, in terms of the decentralization that you're yes. that you're striving yeah. for. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that we are. I don't think very many people realize this yet, but Arweave is socially way out ahead of the field in terms of decentralization. Like, instead of having one core team or an quote Ethereum Foundation unquote, we have eight different organizations that all you know, are aligned with Arweave and are dedicated to working on it, but they, they all have different strategies. I, I run only one of those and I'm on the board of another nonprofit, which does some building, but that I, you know, I'm on like one and a half out of eight or something like that. And so, so it's, it's pretty damn good. Like, it, but it, it didn't start here, frankly, it's been a real process to, to get to this, to this point. And it's still something we're trying to work out and it's not, it's not easy. It's not like a simple task. So, and yeah, like I said, just really trying to stay true to those principles of decentralization while also living with the practicalities of the thing. How do we, how do you, you know, at some point there is a team that builds the thing, right? Like how do we solve that? Right. Um, it's very interesting, very, very tricky, I'd say, but we're, we're making progress. How difficult has it been, um, to get over existing belief systems about storage. But by, by that, I mean, I, I think there's a general skepticism of will this peer-to-peer -peer thing exist long enough that I'm safe to put my data here, right? I, I think that's kind of a knee-jerk thing. Huh. Um, look, I, I think, so I was an investor, investor in vertical commerce. I put like 15 bucks or something into the storage ICO. <laughs> so I've been watching like okay. decentralized storage for a very, really since the, the earliest days. Uh, and I got to say, I have zero confidence that temporary decentralized storage makes any sense at all. I've seen like four different projects come along, get lots of hype and no one uses them. And I think it's, it's a simple right. answer. At all? Yeah, no one. Yeah, really. They can't even pay people to use them. It's crazy. And then the reason for that is pretty obvious. It's like, okay, how many people were censored when they're storing their data privately on Amazon S3? The, the, the answer has got to be virtually zero. So, right. so I think the public permanent storage is something that, you know, can only exist in a decentralized protocol. And so is, has its own niche. I would say that frankly, we haven't experienced as much skepticism about the earliness of the protocol as I would have expected at this point. Like Meta, which is a huge enterprise at this point, they use Arweave for storage. And um, you know, we're, we're five years in. The good news is every year that passes, this gets easier. <laughs> yeah. you know, what's interesting to me is how many, um, how many projects in the crypto DeFi space are using Arweave, right? Um, and right now, where my head is, and, and I have a couple of questions about this, but I'm kind of wondering, um, in terms of Arweave's capabilities, performance, scalability, um, why, why do we need other blockchains in the space? Um, I mean, Arweave doesn't, doesn't focus on being a super fast payment chain. 
like I said, uh, that's, you know, that, that hyper intermingled smart contract, I guess, niche, it's really, I, I'd say, to be frank, people are going to hate me for this, but I, I true. <laughs> Solana is probably the best model for this so far. Which is, oh yeah, people are going to hate yeah, you. Sorry, but, but it's just, hey, I, I, I'm not tribal. I don't care about the, the, the numbers going up or down. I, it's just the truth. As far as I can tell as a tech person, they have done the best job of optimizing the, the uh, highly intermingled smart contract problem space, where basically every contract might want to write under every other contract. But that is actually very, very, very different than something like NFTs. Because actually NFTs, they, you know, you can, I'll, I'll trade the NFT with you, you trade it with someone else. And there's like five interactions over, you know, three or four year period or something. Doesn't, and they're not right. highly inter, intertwined. And so something like SmartWeave is great for that. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, like for DeFi stuff, there will be different chains for sure. And, and also Arweave doesn't, you know, our block time is two minutes. And we don't care about okay. improving that. It's not right. You know, when you write to Arweave, you write using a bundling system and the bundler will make it real time. But for payments, uh, you, you might have to wait, wait some period. And so Arweave is just not a payment chain. It's not what it's supposed to be for. It's hyper optimized to be arbitrarily scalable, like, you know, fit the whole of the web in a single transaction kind of scalable, um, right. permanent data storage. And I, I'm sort of. I know, led by the uh, the Unix philosophy, and you know, I do do one thing and do that one thing really well. <laughs> That's essentially what I'll sure. is. It's permanent storage with a sane risk model. It's totally transparent, fully decentralized, and stable, and it's mature. Hasn't had a single major issue in production since day six of the network, where we had 14 minutes of downtime. It's my great shame. <laughs> but 14 minutes <laughs> in six years, or five years now, I guess. <laughs> Bitcoin has a worse record. So it, I think well, not... yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting close to Bitcoin like uh, reliability. <laughs> That's great. But um, needless to say, it looks to me like a, a lot of people are, um, you know, the, the whole idea of, of do one thing well is fantastic. But the, the, the one thing that you have done, it seems to me, has created opportunities to doing many things on top of that protocol layer, right? Um, it seems like that's what's happening in the community. I mean, there are projects doing all kinds of things on this chain. And and I understand that it's not necessarily a um, high-speed decentralized financial application, but there are a lot of things that can be done on the financial side as well yeah. um, that seem to be happening. For, so. for sure. I mean, so there's what we call atomic assets, right? Where the, the contract is embedded with the data associated with a single ID. Well, I think that creates an entirely different form of finance, which is sort of the, what you say, the freeing or the financialization of the revenue flows on the web. So now every piece of content, you can just trade the future revenue flows and the royalties from. I mean, that's huge. Like imagine that you're a YouTube creator, right? And instead of having to wait like six weeks for your video to get enough views, so you can buy that new camera. No, you can sell like 20% of its future revenue today. And then you go buy the camera and then you make, you know, better videos today, not in six weeks. It's exactly the same reason that farmers sell the futures to their corn and, and the, you know, whatever other crops. Sure. And the same interestingly as Bitcoin miners, they also sell the futures on the Bitcoin that they mine so that you can run a more efficient business. And so I think that's going to be huge. And it's, 
it's happening on Arweave now. Like there are revenue flows that distribute to these um, to these tokens that are embedded in the content itself, and people can just trade those around. So that's pretty amazing. And I think as the creator economy gets bigger, and hopefully as it all moves to Arweave, <laughs> then then that will be a major financial um, what do you say ecosystem. But it's not quite the same as like traditional DeFi and that kind of thing. There'll probably be bridges and stuff into those other chains. Um, and actually, Warp, in fairness, is doing so. Warp is one of the smart contracting systems on Arweave. Uh, same with Evervision. This is another smart contracting chain on Arweave. As I said, like this is a, did you say it's Smartweave is more model for building smart contracting systems than than an implementation. It's like five different versions or something now. But, Wow. But they're making real serious strides in upgrading this thing to be competitive with the, I think like they're frankly way ahead of, and people are really going to hate me for this. And please remember, I still hold my Ethereum from the ICO. Okay. Don't, don't hate me. All right. But a lot better than what's available in the Ethereum ecosystem right now. Um, Amazing. So, I mean, they, they're wow. like eons ahead of that, but I would say Solana still has the, has, has a very solid lead on just pure DeFi financial applications. I just don't think that that's going to be always niche. It's like content fi will be the niche, if that makes sense. So how I, I, I was I was trying to get at earlier that I think that people um, unfortunately have a bias to centralized storage of their information mm -hmm. as much as they know they are at risk for not having it or being used as the product. Um, because their data is the product, right? But I think there's a general skepticism of of this concept, or not skepticism, um, lack of knowledge of of how a system like this works, for them to say yes. I guess my question is this: How do we get? How does our weave get to the point where the creator economy lives there and doesn't care what's going on underneath, right? And 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 that. You know. Yeah, I think that's easy. It's incentives. Just offer a better product. And it'll be it'll be obvious when people realize, hey, you're telling me that there's a market for my video embedded in all my videos, and I can sell a little bit of it, and I can access the future profits, and I can go and buy a better camera, whatever it is. It's it's just, it's not rocket science. It's, it's incentives. And people like financial efficiency. Financial efi efficiency essentially wins out over the long term. But I think... Uh, that's the that's the trivializing view of it. I think to actually get there is going to take a huge amount of time. And so that that institution that I mentioned that I do still run, one of the one of the eight forward research, I see our job as as being like the tip of a spear in trying to <laughs> dig down into the iceberg that is our weaves, that everyone understands, you know, what's happening at this top like surface level, but very few people have really got to the or no, maybe no one has got to the bottom of what it's capable of. And I see our job as like helping put in place the, um, the fundamental infrastructure to make something like creator fi or content fi. I don't have a good name for this yet. <laughs> um, make that happen. Works. And, and there's a bunch of different things that need to be built. And so, so we're really focused on that stuff. For example, like we're, we're, we're incubating this project called Permafax and, uh, they create a system whereby, uh, they're trying to incentivize in journalism, truthiness. So being true and relevance. And they've built this very simple set of contracts that can be added to any piece of data, which creates just a basically support and a post market, which is a bonding curve. And so you buy a token, then the token price increases, but that the money just goes into the, um, 
into the contract itself. And so someone could take out the liquidity for a swap later, kind of like almost a quasi uni swap type deal, but there's not a two sided okay. market. Um, yes. So they, they create this and, and these bonding curves allow you to estimate the truthiness and the relevance of a piece of content that's uploaded to the system. Oh, and nice. yeah, and 5% of the, right, 10%, I forget, um, of the, the commitments to the true side are transferred to the uploader. And so the idea there is, huh, can we, nice. I won't say who, but we're, we're chatting to, and they seem, actually I spoke to them just like an hour ago. Um, yeah, one of the major publications in crypto, they're, they're interested in using this system so that they can essentially create a new revenue stream but they're not paid by clicks. They're paid by truth and relevance, which is, you know, I, I wow. Of, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 So that's just like one thing we're doing, you know, we're doing like, a that's amazing. Now does that, so let, let's take a, a major crypto publication utilizing a platform like that. Right. Uh, are they presenting the data through the standard kind of web 2.0 domain name registration system? And then, how do I, as a user, navigate? Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. We think DNS is a, uh, well, look, DNS, uh, you're not going to kill it. I think the whole, like, you know, replacing the top level domains is, is just not, not a fight even worth bothering with really like DNS is a testament to how, uh, how resilient protocols can get, you know, when, when they become ingrained. It's not a good protocol. It's like sure. DNS is a straight up bad yeah. protocol. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and, and the system is for, for like, if people understood how DNS zones are replicated around the world, they would be, they would be horror and shock. <laughs> uh, but you know, like it's what we got. And <laughs> um, my, my partner, she, she loves DNS sec. So she'll, she'll complain me for this, but I digress. <laughs> um, anyway, look, I don't think that we replace DNS, but I do think that if we are dependent on just DNS, that's a problem. And so in the Arweave ecosystem, right. we have this thing called the Arweave name service or ARNS. Um, and basically it's a way of registering subdomains on gateways. So you can register, I registered Sam. And that means that on any gateway that is running ARNS, I can pull back sam.arweave.dev or, or whatever it happens to be. Gatewayzero.com, I think is another one. <laughs> um, and so you have portability of access to the, the data, but you don't have to depend on the browsers to implement this crazy thing that, you know, just, yeah, it, it, you know, it might happen eventually and that would be great. I'd be, I'd be very happy if it did, but it's going to take like a decade to do properly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We don't have a decade. So yes, you can, you can access the data. Oh, I, I didn't really say this. Like, yeah, everything in Arbiv is available in the web browser. It's purely web native. Even like always nodes themselves are just <laughs> web servers. Actually, they 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 speak to each other by posting and getting you know the data. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, nice. And we and we, we figure that because like you know we're building a permanent web, right? Well, then the nodes themselves should even speak the language of the web. Um, yeah, and so so you can access through these gateways, and you can give your content nice names, and uh, works pretty smoothly, and it's portable. And you can then say AR colon stroke stroke Sam. And if you have Arconnect installed, it'll just redirect you to whatever your home gateway, if you will, you know, the one you prefer is. Ultimately, there are today steps that, that are required by users to kind of come explore the permaweb, mm -hmm. right? And, and 
and they're not what they're used to. And so obviously for the, or I say obviously, for, from my perspective, the average, my wife is not conceptually going to understand it. But I would assume that there will be applications um, that make it so she doesn't have to understand it yes. and, and see it, yeah. right? And have, and, and go through the process of installing um, something to make it recognize the network. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we see that being like multiple forms of, of applications on the RV network. There's those that are like uh, Web 2.5, say, right? They have like a centralized part and then they have decentralized storage underneath. And then there's full perma web right. applications. And of course, where we hope that things are going in the long run is, is full perma web applications. And we see movement in that direction. But okay. uh, to begin with, for example, you could use Accord. Um, yeah, so, so if you go to welcome.rweave.dev or AR colon structure welcome, if you have Arconnect installed, <laughs> you, can, you can go there and uh, um, upload a file using this thing. And you can use even like a username and password or an email address and password, just like the normal web. So you get access to Arweave st storage, but the UI and, and you know, those components interacting with your, your user account are not the, uh, the high degree of, of self-sovereignty that we would expect with a proper implementation of a Pembo app. But if you were to go to dap underscore rdrive.rweave.net, sorry, .dev, <laughs> um, then you can get like a fully decentralized experience. That that UI lives on the Pembo web. Um, it uploads data to the Pembo web. It can never be changed. They can't control it. Um, and if they go bankrupt, which God forbid, I hope not, but um, if they were to, that, that service is going nowhere. It will always be online, so. Still always be available. That's right. beautiful. Okay. Um, I had listed out questions about everything functionally, um, and you've answered a lot of them, but I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I complete, there's a couple of other things I wanted to get to, Please. if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. Um, okay, so we talked about smart contracts, and, and it now sounds like there are multiple layers of smart contracts being developed for, for our week. Yeah. Um, and how are those... How are those layers implemented in the in the protocol itself? They're not. How does that function? Yeah, so that's the kind okay. of beauty, right? Like the, the base protocol is complete and it is uh, it's robust and mature and it doesn't change. And the most interesting thing was sure. to support smart contracting layers on top required zero lines of code changes to the, the layer below. It's kind of cool. Turns out permanent storage is that's like- That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really, really flexible as <laughs> a primitive. This is, um, yeah, I think, I, I don't, I really don't think people fully grasp, I don't think I fully grasp yet the power of how this functions, right? How, how this code and data together uh, live here and become executable um, for the, in this way. Um, but I definitely want to dive deeper into the component of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can try and outline it as, as simply as I can if you Sure. Want. Yeah, okay, so. Sure. So. What Aweave gives you is basically like a, oh, geez, this might not actually be helpful, but the way I think of it is this. Go for it. It's a chrono Merkle tree of data. Like over time, okay. so it's this Merkle tree that you keep on adding data to in a stack, one huge stack, and that's right. why it's scalable. Not many, many different stacks, which is another question, but um, one huge stack of data, and over time, you, you add new blocks to that stack, and it's actually interesting, the Merkle tree of blocks at the, at the top layer as well. Um, and you're, you're doing a sort of proof of work puzzle when you add a proof of you know, replication of data in our case, 
puzzle when you add data right. to the network. And so what you're doing is just producing this huge Merkle tree that uh, goes from left to right, if you will, in the time that data was added. Now, it turns out with smart contracting systems, what you really need is that the inputs to the smart contract need to be in an order, right? This is where finality comes from. Because look, if you and I try and interact with a, I know like an NFT airdrop contract I'm imagining, and we're trying to claim the last NFT, right? But then one of our transactions goes through and the other one does not. So the important right. thing is that there is an, a, a complete ordering where mine is before yours or yours is before mine. And sure. that those inputs to the contract are not lost, right? They need to be what we call the data is available. Just a bit of a wonky tech term, <laughs> whatever. Uh, I, I didn't come up with that one. I think it's super confusing. It's all good. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel bad for the people that have to explain to people what the product is if it's data available. And that doesn't actually mean that the data is permanent or like, you know, available for a long time. It's actually just actually the, available. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's almost like you have this whole product and this thing is basically, look guys, the data exists. <laughs> and that's explaining why that's useful is super hard. <laughs> but anyway, so, so good luck to those people. I, I do feel, feel for them. All right. So you need to have the data be available and it needs to be in a consistent order. And so we can lean on our use consensus to give it that order and the availability of the base layer just tags on our data. You have data availability uh, guarantees for this. And so what we can do then is we can say, okay, I want to find out the state of contract. So I say, sure, I'll run the SmartWeave client and I'll say, is this contract ID? And it says, okay, let me go to that, that, uh, that data entry and look at the tags and it says, ah, the Initial state should be this. That's like, you know, NFT, uh, making this up as I go along, but there's like a hundred to claim would be in there. Right. And then there would be the contract ID. And of course, that's just to a link to a piece of data on Arweave. And interestingly, the data in that transaction might be something cool, like a, like a JPEG or a video or a web page or who knows what, right. And that's where you get these atomic assets from. So then the, your computer looks through this and says, okay, cool. So I've got the initial state. Let me go and ask for everything that has interacted with this contract. And there you, you, you depend on Arweave um, to give you consensus about the ordering, what came before what, and um, the availability that you're going to make sure that there's nothing that you missed in the middle. Because that, that's another way that you could introduce non-determinism. Okay, so you download those things and you execute them. There you go. That's your smart contract. And that's like level zero, if you want, or level one. And that's hyper, right. hyper flexible. Like you can do whatever you want in that smart contract because the, the security model is totally different. Like instead of it being that, you know, the code is running on someone else's server, I, as the user, trust you, the developer. And so I run your code. So you can do whatever you want to my computer in the same way a desktop app can do whatever it wants to my computer. Because I've chosen to trust you. I've chosen to trust you, precisely. Right. All right. So then on top of that, if you want to get access to the state of a contract in like, you know, in tech, we would call big O one, like, like constant time. It doesn't matter how, how many interactions the, the contract has had, you just get instant access to the state. Then you can use what we would call a state resolution engine. And, and these are just very simple systems that sit on top of the, the contracts and they're watching the contract and saying, okay, is there an update? Is there an update? And you can ask them, oh, please give me the state. And they'll give you a signed attestation that says, yes, I promise that this was a state at this time. And then on top of that, you can build whatever sort of system for regulating those nodes that you want. It's like 
it's really like a open framework for building smart contract systems, basically like the, the version. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so there are all sorts wow. of different, different, you know, state resolution engines. You can trashing that, servers to make it faster and efficient. That, that moment when that clicked for you all just must have been. Yeah, <laughs> I, wow. I was, a, it was in the middle of the pandemic and I was, um, and everyone was quarantining and, and I didn't have a whiteboard at the time, but I did have like a, <laughs> a, 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 what do you call it? The kitchen, like the cupboards just so happened to have that super shiny surface. And I, was like, <laughs> oh, nice. and I wrote a little bit on it and I was like, rubbed it out and oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> you can, uh, so, so I was, I was quote, whiteboarding unquote on my, uh, on my kitchen cupboards. <laughs> and then we were like, wait, wow, yeah, you can totally, uh, you totally build smart contracts on always, and you could have done from day one. Well, that's a surprise. <laughs> it was, uh, those, yeah. but those moments, those moments in, in inventing and in tech are so like, those are levels of exhilaration yeah. that are just incredible. <laughs> oh, you don't so, need to tell me I, I live for that stuff. <laughs> that's, that's just, that's, I can just imagine, you know, I, I can imagine the feeling. And, and that to me is really, that's, that's powerful. Yeah. Um, privacy and encryption, I'm yes. assuming because they're files, they're stored in whatever state they are, and it's just an application that needs to access and decrypt. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. We think that the base layer should do nothing about encryption, uh, that the data should just be open because it's a web, right? And so actually you want most of the right. data to be open. Um, however, of course, if you want to encrypt it, then you can just store the cipher text. And the cool thing about that is you get to choose what algorithm you want. And it's a, it's a you know, the, the, the cipher that you use to, to store your data is an important choice. And so giving that to users and letting them change it over time is, is an important part of the architecture. It's actually one of our yeah, three principles. I think that makes sense. It's like immutable, yeah. never changing that. <laughs> That's great. That's great. If you were to tell somebody that's fairly tech savvy, but, but you know, to try are we, what would be the three applications or use cases that you would, that you would have them explore? And I know that's generic yeah. for different people that might be different things they're interested in, but just in, in general. I would say go to the Arweave Eco Twitter account, which is used to be called Arweave Team, but now we kind of decentralized ownership of it so that, you know, anyone from the community, if they nice. build something cool, they can get it retweeted by that. And so it's like an aggregator. Nice. And look at the last three things that are there, or just scroll down the list until you find it. Oh, awesome. Because it's like every single day there's cool stuff being built. And so if I tell you something cool today, by the time you listen to this podcast, it's going to be like boring and old. So yeah, just go, go check it out. That's, I love that. I, I, I love the challenge of that. That's, uh, that, that, that takes guts. That's great. That's awesome. Um, I think that's all kind of the core questions. Um, when, you know, I know you said that this is obviously not something that's for financial applications necessarily uh, in terms of the way we see them in DeFi. It also sounds like competitively, functionally, you know, you're not, you're, you're in a better place than some of the chains we rely on every day for that's hundreds for sure. of millions of dollars of financial applications. Oh, yeah. Don't get so. me started on that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so while I appreciate your um, demurring to, the powered speed Alana or, or whatever else, or that this isn't our intent. Um, I think that there's um, incredible amount of potential um, in our weave that people don't know about yeah. and don't have a concept of what's here. You know, what we hear in this world in blockchain is so-and-so 
product has decided to start using our way of paper storage, which is great. Yeah. I mean, that was the mission, but um, I, I, I'm hopeful that we can open some more eyes because I think um, this is this is pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity to speak. I have two more questions. Oh, oh let's go. Let's I go. Everybody. Sorry. I, I would say Sorry. Um, just uh, that one. Go ahead. The, you mentioned the mission and it, it got me thinking. I sort of see that having these, basically decentralizing the web applications that we use every day is part of the central mission of Arweave. That is like, funnily enough, yes. <laughs> Right back at the beginning in, in mid-2017, I made these really terrible videos at like 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, they're showing you how you could, in theory, build a Twitter-like system on top of Arby's because it's like that's how you ensure speech in cyberspace, right? Like it's got to be a social network of some sort. Right. And so I sort of feel like, you know, this moving of, yes, yes, the data, but also the whole application space onto Arby's is like essential to that, that mission. Otherwise, we're going to have a world of A, brittle, but B, non-right preserving applications that everyone uses every day where your right to speech is like if elon musk you know decides that you can which to be frank is better than the prior situation but uh, you know, <laughs> it's like degrees of terrible right <laughs> right well here's here's what's interesting to me is um because of the way the data is in the system and the power of the tagging in the meta i could envision enabling every one to have, I don't want to say their own social network, but their own view to what a social network is, right? Yes, right. Um, and, and that, huh. that yes. to me is, you know, look, every attempt to, to break away from Twitter or Facebook fails miserably. It's either an ideological focus or it's a, um, a split focus when people start to exodus one of the platforms because they're angry about something that somebody has done. Um, but this idea... I think that's actually the one way that it could win. If if the interface is dynamic enough and the um, capabilities of the data are dynamic enough that we can interconnect easily and utilize it and see it how we want to. Yes. Funny you should mention that. Now, one of the questions people always ask about are we this what about content moderation, right? And I'm surprised you didn't actually, but you know, I, to be frank, I appreciate it. I answer that question so many times, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. I just don't think it's. Some... <laughs> yeah. No, it's cool. It's, it, it's, you know, everyone's got their, uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yes. But in the answer to that question lies something really interesting you seem to have picked out, which is, Hey, well, if these applications are stored on a permanent system and you have these views into them through the gateway, like that deep decoupling, as I described of the infrastructure from the app. Well, then the infrastructure can decide what it wants to, to uh, index. This is super cool because it means that you can write one application, right? And you have it out there and it's got no content policy is one way to do it. And then when you pull the application back through different infrastructure, which could potentially share your political beliefs or your potentially, unfortunately, your government mandated censorship regime, who knows what world we end up in, but then you can at least you have the same application, you have many different views upon it, basically. And in the background, yeah. everyone's data is there and it's shared around the world and it's, and it's immutable and censorship resistant. But on the front end, if you so desire or if you are forced, you can access the application um, without changing a line of code in a way that is compliant with yeah, either your desires or your requirements, let's say. And, and so I think that's, that's yeah. super interesting. I mean, 
one of the, the stories of Web2 that, that is surprising and, and not many people have really like, okay, the, the story of Web2 as I see it, and you know, you, frankly, you, you saw this whole story for longer than I did, so I'm really curious to see what you think. Um, <laughs> but, but we basically created social networks and then it was like, wow, look at this power of the ability to bring people together. So we used technology to decide what information should be shared rather than editorial control, which was the prior system, right? Uh, of media, of right. mass broadcast media. Okay. And then, you know, that, that was a boom. People love that. It turns out. It's, sure. I love that. I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a pro-democracy person and, and I, I think there's nothing more democratic than the ability to let people speak and debate. So great right. to see, but then what happened over time is that the content moderation became, it's like, we almost had peer to peer media. We had peer to peer asterisks media. And like, it turned out that asterisks was really important because that was the point of, you know, someone had to control it. And if you can yeah. censor, someone is going to turn up at your door and say, Hey, you should not be showing people that you must do you it. must you exactly yeah. and then you know starting about 2013 there was this enormous pressure campaign that took twitter from quote the free speech wing of the free speech party as jack said in I think like 2011 something like that to like you know <laughs> i'm not sure your view of what was happening during the last few years but it was pretty the censorship was crazy it was yeah it was a long way from a, a neutral public square which was what they was they want to of course and 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 it's so bizarre because like the real product <laughs> was just like this you know this front end on a database of like short messages and that was perfected but the yeah. thing that that led to is like you know this real vignette is like hostile takeover and destruction of the company firing of the board and firing of like 80 to i think it was 80 to 90 percent of the people that worked there was content moderation it wasn't even about it's crazy it's crazy Absolutely That's, crazy. It's amazing. And so, so, well, what I'm excited about is that Arweave lets you if, you, if you want as a developer, you can put a content moderation system on top. You could say, for example, this community represented by this DAO, if they have soul bound tokens, so it's not plutocracy, but you earn the token by, you know, contributing. Um, they can vote on what content should be uh, not shown in this space. And so they can be sovereign in that area of cyberspace, which is something you can never do in Web2. But that's one way of doing it. Or you can just say there is no content moderation policy in the application and you leave it to the protocol. And so now suddenly you've, you've removed this massive problem, which, which destroyed the web to, you know, era basically. And if you, know, yeah. like, if you, either you censor too much and everyone hates you or you censor too little and the other people hate you, <laughs> we can just like let developers get on with building cool products. And I think that that's probably a good thing. That's beautiful. And you can let the end user decide the content they do care to see and don't care to see. Yeah. Being able to control that yourself um, and the dynamic nature of what it sounds like Arweave has um, is an incredibly powerful, you know, back to that whole free form text-based database thing that, that I was talking about earlier um, is very much in line with that. That's fascinating. Um, what, what is kind of next for, is there a next for Arweave or is it, is it, is it our weave is the protocol and the next are those eight foundations that you talked about building atop or promoting or whatever. Is that, is that where you are? Yeah, that's exactly right. Like the protocol shouldn't change now. Okay. The whole focus is adoption of the protocol and exploring all of its, I mean, the thing I'm excited about exploring is like the wilder uses of the system and, and 
experimenting this. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 the whole game at this point. And in the meanwhile, in the meantime, <laughs> the the protocol just stabilizes and in a good way calcifies, becomes just this is what it is. And anyone can come along, nice. they can audit it, they can decide if they want to use it or trust it or not. That's up to them, but it's an open, permissionless, neutral and immutable pro protocol. Um, yeah, and there's frankly no end of things to do on the adoption end. So that's amazing to see. Like, you know, we just saw Meta pick up Arbif at the end of last year. There's a bunch of other people using it for just a ton of stuff. So yeah, it's, amazing. <laughs> it's exciting stuff. Yeah, it's it's amazing the validation from two for utilizing a decentralized uh, storage network. It's very it's cool. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm, it's crazy. I've been yeah. really impressed that they are, they are willing to, because obviously Meta is trying to build a metaverse, right? What's exciting is that they're actually right. embracing open protocols so far to do Love so. Love that. That's, that's, that's very forward thinking and encouraging. I was not necessarily. And it also makes good business sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a really exciting ride on that front. I really hope the metaverse. If, uh, um, if you were, if, if someone came to you today and, and said they were building something like this or similar, but what, what lessons or lesson that you've learned or things you've done incorrect things you did really well and you were surprised you did, would you impart to that person? There's so many things wrong. We try our best all the time, but like, you know, make mistakes. Every Is there one or two big ones that, that you were like, Oh my God, don't do this. Too, too many of those individual instances to count, but, 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 but perhaps more usefully, I could point to a couple of sort of lessons that come from the net of those, those mistakes. Perfect. And perfect. This one's a strange thing to say, but I sort of feel like y you should have the, the confidence and stupidity to some extent to just stand up and say what it is that you actually think and to follow something that you think is truly worthy of your time and attention and just, just, I guess, follow it to the grave, you know, like see where it goes. I, because I, I see there's so much, you know, focus on, and so many projects do this. They, they really just kind of go, well, you know, today we're doing that because that's what everyone else is doing today. We're doing that. And, and the, the weird thing in life and in business is that you will live or die by your differences, not your similarities. So if everyone's doing something, it might be a good strategy when one person is doing it, but if everyone's doing it, it's unlikely to be a good strategy because then you have to differentiate yourself from every single other person that's executing the same strategy. The likelihood that you're going to be the best at that is actually relatively low. Whereas if you just have an idea and like, it's not what everyone else is doing, it goes against the grain and you just say, well, you know, we're going to try it out. <laughs> There's actually quite, yeah, you might get it wrong. You, you got to live with the ability to, to um, embrace your mistakes and, and to move on. But, but also you might get it right. And you might be the, the person that's first to a sort of greenfield opportunity. And that is really powerful in life. So, so having the, the fortitude to think for yourself, I'd say is, uh, is really important. And it's something that early founders sometimes don't get that, that information. So I try and pass it on. That's awesome. I think that's incredibly perfect, good advice for founders. Um, last question I ask everyone is um, who's somebody uh, in this attempt at being a decentralized protocol world 
that you have um, an immense amount of uh, respect for that you think is absolutely critical? I mean, it's like a Pareto distribution. It's like Satoshi, man. Like, of course, it's Satoshi. Satoshi, so much right. It's extraordinary. It's unbelievable. Like, I look at, you know, how difficult it is to try and build a properly decentralized protocol now. And there's so many policy questions, if you will, like, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to try and get pushed towards decentralization, make sure it's all fair and useful to people and, and all the rest. And, but no, Satoshi just like nailed it <laughs> on draft one. And, and it's really astounding to, to, to think like how did the, the, the enduring mystery of crypto that nowadays they're so used to, they're so used to it that we don't question it, I guess. But how is it that the largest quote startup unquote of the, the 2010s era came from a guy or person or a group i my hunch is a person because get into another time maybe but a person one way or another i think that that stepped away from it after a year and then suddenly it grew to be like over a trillion dollars in less than 10 years it's astonishing unbelievable That's amazing really really astounding yeah it's incredible yeah, yeah it's it's absolutely and, and i don't think we stop and think about that often enough right but it is absolutely incredible it actually embodies your founder message that you right. just, huh. I guess made. so. Yeah. I mean, talk about t- talking about doing it differently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Sam, um, this is absolutely fascinating. I am really excited about our weave and I'm going to, I'm going to definitely be taking a d- deeper dive personally and, and a project I'm working on. So amazing. Um, I, I'm very excited to have gotten to know you and I'd love to, to touch base again in six months or so and yeah. uh, see how things are going and moving forward. Yeah. Thank you. That was a appreciate super fun it. conversation. Appreciate the getting fast storage, you know, appreciate you putting the time in. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> thank absolutely. You. Absolutely.